We are in part seven of our Building God's Way series through Nehemiah, and um, I'm going to have you turn with me to page 409. We're going to be starting in, uh, let's see here, we're going to be starting in chapter 13, verse 4, all right? But as you're turning there, let me just ask you a couple questions. Uh, Do you remember that time when you took out the trash, right? Do you, you... you remember that? No, no, of course not. Do you remember that time when you were brushing your teeth? That one time. Let's hope that that's hard to remember. Yes? Uh, do you remember that time you put gas in your car? All right, of course not. Now, why not? Because you've done it so many times, right? The idea is that they're not one-time events. They're actually continual processes. They were designed to be done over and over and over again. Do you realize that growing in the Lord And becoming more like him and removing sin out of your life is a continual process. Because what happens is we get super disappointed when we get something out of our life and it shows back up again. Or we think that we went to that one conference and we got super fired up about God and then later on it started to fade. And we're like, what is wrong with me? I did that once. You're right, you did that once. But the very principle is process. We need to continue to do that. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It's actually how it's built to be. If we are going to build God's way, we need to get comfortable with process. I'm going to say that again. If we were going to build God's way, we need to get comfortable with process. If we give up when we see that we are flaky and unfaithful, We lose. That actually means you're human, not that you're a failure. Do you know how human beings grow spiritually? Wouldn't it be nice if it was just a very clean stairway to heaven? You know what I'm talking about? Where it just kind of goes up and to the right all the way through and you start here and you end up next to the side of Jesus and everything that you put in has great return and it's all an easy, straightforward, logical process. That's just simply not how it is. Life is a series of setbacks, challenges, victories, and we never grow in a straight line. We're all over the place, yeah? The point isn't to arrive. The point is to transform. The point isn't to arrive. The point is to transform. And here's the problem with transformation. The more you do it, the more you know you need it. Isn't that true? You walk through a doorway and you realize there's a bunch more doors. And you walk through those doorways and there's a bunch more doors. You start out and you said, man, I really need to work on this sin issue. And then you get victory in that area and you realize, wow, that was simply a symptom of a deeper problem. Now you have to deal with something else. You start out by saying, wow, I really have a problem with stealing. And then later on you find out you have a problem with your identity in Jesus. And that's way more messy, right? So the more mature you get, the more you see areas you need to mature. The more sin you put away, the more sin you see that needs to be rooted out. And so you feel like you're a failure in your growth. You are not. You're doing it right. It's just messy. But wow, it's hard to stay motivated during all that 
two steps forward, three steps back. One step forward, two steps back, right? All that stuff. Here's what it all means. It's the fill in the blank on the app in front of you, or if you just want to write this down, write this down this line. Change is never a one-time event. Change is never a one-time event. Now, we're going to be wrapping up this Nehemiah series, so let me remind you, if you're brand new, kind of where we're at in the story, we're going back thousands of years to a gentleman named Nehemiah who felt called by God to rebuild the city of Jerusalem's walls. Israel had been judged by God, removed from their land, and were out for 70 years. God allowed them to go back in, and they went in in three successive waves, but by the time Nehemiah's around, there's no city walls. Jerusalem lies in ruins. The little baby temple is built. People are there, but there's no city. And he has this burning in his heart to go rebuild it. So he goes back, uses his money, and gets allowance from a pagan king to go back, and they do this massive rebuilding project, and with God's help, they do it in record time. Last week, Pastor Brian was teaching us, and where he left off, they had just had this massive celebration. We did it. What everyone said was impossible. Everyone was on our case and telling us, you're never going to make it. You're never going to make it. Everyone tried to stop us. We got through all of that, and we did it. They had this huge party, and there was a dedication over the wall, and they all had this time of confession of sin and reading God's word, and then they all signed a contract covenant that says, God, we're never going to be disobedient again. We're never going to be rebellious again. We are yours, and you are mine. Boy, that's how the story ended last time. And then Nehemiah went home. You see, he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He goes home for a little bit, and while he's gone, everything falls apart. Seriously? After all that effort, leadership drops the ball, and everything starts to melt down. Hmm. Real quick question. How many of you have ever done a renovation on a house other than your own? Anyone ever done work on other people's houses? Yep. Everyone? All right. Good, good, good. I am not a handyman. Let's be clear on that. Uh, Real quick show of hands. How many of you have ever done work on your own house? Anybody ever done work on your own house? Oh, okay. There's a lot more of you. I hate working on my own house. I would much rather work on someone else's house. Yeah, and here's why. Because when you finish the job, you leave, and you pretend like it will always stay that way. Whereas in your own house, it just keeps breaking. I fixed my sink more than once. Why can't you just fix a sink and let a sink just stay fixed, right? If you mow the lawn, guess what happens? It grows again. Then you got to mow it again. And it's like, man, I hate maintenance. Like, I want to build and then go la, 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 and just run away. So I love the idea of like a renovation project at somebody else's house. I love that idea where you could flip a house and then just walk away and go, see, it's perfect. And you just pretend that it's always perfect, It doesn't matter if it falls apart on them, right? But when it's your own house, it won't stay fixed. I'll give you another example. I'm not sure how this happens, 
But something that is resembling a weasel <laughs> crawls into my daughter's shower drain every five months. Not sure where it comes from. Like I'm pulling it out with needle-nose pliers. Like I'm removing significant amounts of hair, which I'm certain is an animal. I remove the hair, I put it in the garbage can, and somehow there's a resurrection. It comes out of the garbage can and then crawls down the drain, and I got to do it again five months later, right? Can it just stay out of the drain, right? I mean, it's just one thing after another. Pick up our story in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4. This is how he tells it. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was all taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went back to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, came back to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, and I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with a grain offering and the frankincense. All right, was that meaningful? Who is Tobiah, and why do we care? Well, Actually, if you remember, this rebuilding process, it was miserable, primarily due to two people. Two people that opposed the whole building, opposed the whole resettlement process, Sanballat and Tobiah. So what happened? Nehemiah goes home, and the high priest of Israel brings the bad guy, one of only two, and gives him an apartment in the temple. What the heck? How does that happen? I mean, how weird does that have to be? The very guy that threatened Nehemiah's life, the very guy that tried to dissuade them, slandered them, said he's going to launch an attack on them. The same guy who hired a fake prophet to try to lead him astray gets an apartment in the church. That is so messed up. Why in the world would that happen? Well, I don't know if you saw it when we were reading, but he's related to the high priest. Well, that's awkward, right? I mean, do you realize that if you look through it a little bit deeper, he's not only related, the high priest isn't only related to Tobiah, he's related to Sanballat. His grandkids are married in. So wait, wait, wait. So the two worst people leading the entire anti-settlement effort are related to the high priest of Israel in Jerusalem. Great. How awkward are those family dinners? Yeah? Hmm. Maybe 
Maybe you can't relate to this, or maybe you can. Quick show of hands, how many people are old enough to remember Westerns? Anybody remember Westerns? All right. See, when TV shows were first coming out and Westerns were a big deal, they kind of helped the audience along by giving them some indicators on what the characters were. They didn't know them from before, so you kind of saw some visuals. And so what they would do is that they would have the good guys wear white hats, the bad guy wear black hats. And that made everything easier. You could just look by the, side, the color of the hat and know it was a good guy or a bad guy. Man, wouldn't that make life way easier? Just wherever you go in society, there's just like a big indicator, bad guy, good guy, and we live in an entire household and world of gray hats. Here's how you might relate. There are some of you that the number one opponent to you growing in the Lord is your own family. Some of you might relate when the people that make fun of you the most for being a Christian are your friend group. Doesn't it make things a little bit complicated? They're the very people that you love. They're the very people you want to be around, but it's so hard to be around because your heart is ripped in two different directions. God, I love you most, I want to be with you most, but yet the people on this planet who you have my heart locked into hate the very concept of me being a Christian. And so I always feel like I'm, I'm halved. Like I'm trying to live this way and I'm trying to live this way. And, and then there's, it's always either I run with them and feel like I'm compromising or I run with God and I feel isolated and alone. And, and everything gets messy. You see, it would have been so easy for Nehemiah if all the bad guys that he had to battle with weren't in the family line of all the people that were in his crew. But that's just how life is. It's part of the process of trying to grow up in a fallen world. When those that oppose us are also loved by us, we have to navigate boundary setting very carefully. As a matter of fact, sometimes we need to push back and isolate out and wall off some very, very important people in our lives. Now, if there's another way, I would encourage you to go the other way, to somehow maintain connection and love but sometimes it gets so toxic that your heart breaks and you have to make difficult calls. Pick it up in verse 10. That was one thing that fell apart while he was gone. Here's another one, verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his own field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And let me paraphrase what he did. He started the process again and he brought in new leadership. What's the problem? The whole entire temple process failed. Why? 
because it was run on a system of people giving tithe into the temple that paid for the temple workers who ministered to the people and ministered before God. The leadership drops the ball, the entire system falls apart, so now the Levite temple workers have no money to survive, so they all had to quit and they all went home. So who's running the temple? Nobody. How does that happen? How does the entire system of ministering before God, the entire system of sacrifices before God, the entire system of worship before God, how does that fail? The system failed. Why? Because no one was keeping the system going. What was Nehemiah's solution? Get better leadership. This is ridiculous. Why are we here? The temple's empty, and it shouldn't be. What can we learn from that? I think we can learn something about healthy systems. I would love to tell you that I am now 49, and I have not walked away significantly from the Lord. I've had sin issues and all kinds of normal stuff, but I've not walked away from the Lord significantly my entire life. I grew up breathing the Lord like air. It was so normal to me. And I have been able to stay connected to him and true to him my entire life. I would love to tell you that that's because I am a better person than you are. And that is simply not true. I would love to tell you it's because I'm more holy, and that is absolutely not true. I would love to tell you that I just tried harder than you, and that is not true. So why have I been able to be so faithful for so long? Systems. I'll give you four systems on why I'm still alive and kicking with Jesus. You might want to write these down. Number one, I have a healthy support system. I have a healthy support system. You see, when, when I was younger, I opted to get married. And when I chose to get married, I chose to marry a woman who loved the Lord with all of her heart. So I have a godly spouse in my house. When we raised our children, our children were raised in the Lord. I made sure that they always loved church. I did everything in my power to make sure that they still wanted to be around here. My children are following the Lord. My children are actually even pouring back into me now that they're older. So I have that. My mom is my spiritual role model. She still goes to this church to this day. And she's still a massive influence in my life. She is a support part of my system, right? I have an intercessor prayer team that prays for me every day and fasts for me every day. I have godly friends. I have a wise and godly staff around me. Now you tell me, with that kind of support, how is Satan ever going to get a clear shot at me? Does that make sense? There's too many people running interference in front of me. I have so much support, so many people praying for me, watching over me, caring for me, caring whether or not I'm okay or I'm not okay. I have friends texting me to check on me. If I have that much support system around me, it's very hard to fall without someone hearing me fall. Number two, 
I have an accountability system. An accountability system. I chose to work in an occupation that has high demands on me remaining close to God. As a matter of fact, I don't have a job that encourages cheating, encourages compromise, encourages cutting corners. I have a job that has incentives built in to doing things the right way. It's an accountability system. I decided early on that I was going to live transparently. That means I live just who I am in front of everybody so everybody kind of knows where my trajectory is and what I'm involved in and what I'm doing so it's really hard to hide. I have accountability everywhere in my life. It's really hard to get too far down a bad path when you get busted on step one. Does that make sense? Number three. I have an encouragement system. I have an encouragement system. You see, I have the ultimate say on who gets hired at Bridgeway and who doesn't. And they always talk about there's three things that you always want to analyze when you're going to hire somebody. Three C's, right? There's character, there's competency, there's chemistry. Now, everybody knows, and I've been very loud about this, that I hire character first. That's it. If people don't have a good heart, they're not going to work here. That's just how it has to go. But when it comes to the other two, it's interesting because my number two is not competency. It's chemistry. And here's why. If I was trying to find the fastest gun in the West, if I was trying to find only the most brilliant people and and the ones that can only advance the most brilliant ministry, but I was battling them all the time, I don't want to work there. I would much rather have chemistry with the people I work with and we can figure out the other pieces together. The reason why that's so important is because when I select people to work at Bridgeway, I do it with this thought in mind. Laughter is the oil of my soul's engine. If I can't laugh at myself, if I can't screw around, if we can't joke around with each other, if we can't mess with each other as they're walking by, if my office does not ring with laughter, I don't want to be there. So I pick people that can joke around with me. I pick people that we work harder than almost any other staff you would ever imagine, and the entire time we're screwing around as well. And we're saying inappropriate stuff, and we're laughing about something that's ridiculous, and we're messing with each other. Why? Because it's the only way I can keep sane. The jobs that we do are so significant and severe, I need laughter to keep me going. I have an encouragement system built in. I have people that come in, and they'll just, I, got, I just got a mug from my assistant the other day that says Yoda best, and it just has Yoda's face on it. I'm never going to drink out of that mug. It just sits on my shelf and makes me laugh. I have a bumper sticker given to me that says beef is a new kale. I have a sign that says leftovers are for quitters. I mean, I just have have stuff that's around me that makes me laugh, right? Sarcasm, just one of the things I offer, right? That kind of stuff. Because I have to laugh. It keeps me alive. And number four, I have a serving system. I have a serving system. 
by the job that I do, I am forced to serve other people every day. Every morning I get up and there's a to-do list about other people's lives. There is not a lot on that list that Lance should do this for himself. That's not my job. My job is take care of this person and love on this person and build a ministry for this person and reach out to this group and do this. My entire world is built on thinking of other people before myself. With systems like this, that's the only reason I'm still in the game. It is not because I tried harder. It's not because I'm more holy. It's not because I'm better at anything. It's I have too many nets catching me and too many helps pushing me forward. Do you have these systems around you? You see, being human means that you're gonna ebb and flow, rise and fall, hot and cold, right? It's part of the natural process of being in this world. Therefore, we need external systems to keep us aligned and keep us motivated. That's why if we're going to build God's way, we need to get used to process, but then we compensate for it, right? You compensate for it. Yes, you're going to ebb and flow. Yes, you're going to have highs and lows. What are you going to do about it? You have to have something around you that keeps you strong when you're weak. Pick it up in verse 15. Here's something else that fell apart while he was gone. In those days I saw in Judah, that's Israel, people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. That's a no-no. Bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Go to verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Go to verse 19, the end of it. I commanded that the door should be shut and I gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. Verse 20. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares, they lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. (laughs) That's pretty intense. What's the problem? Jerusalem was once again violating the Sabbath. What does the Sabbath say? From Friday evening to Saturday evening, you don't work. You rest and hang out with God. What is so hard about resting? Like, why does God have to keep pushing on this one? Why does he always have to go, no, I'm serious, you have to nap, right? I mean, it's like we're all children again. You have to go lay down or just take a book with you. You know what I mean, right? We do all these things. Why is it so hard for us to stop working and chill out? Is it really too much for God to ask for us to mellow out? Apparently it is because we all seem to have a problem with it. Why? Why did Israel have such a problem with the Sabbath? I I, I don't know. They They didn't really tell me. But it's probably similar to what we go through, right? Because there's probably one or two reasons why you have a hard time putting work aside. It either means, number one, you're addicted to more. I mean, that may be your problem. Because here's the thing, you love stuff, you love options, and when you work, you get money, which gives you options and gives you stuff. So the minute you stop that, you stop getting more stuff. Maybe that's what you're struggling with. 
That's not always what I struggle with. I struggle with the second one. When I stop producing, I feel less. Like something's wrong. Like I'm not advancing something. And I feel like there's something wrong with me. When God asked me to chill out and call it a day and just relax, I'm not making things better for myself, at least in my mind. But God built us. Doesn't he know what our system really needs? Hmm. You know, another problem that kept coming up is that Israel would fall into these sins over and over and over again. The Sabbath thing isn't new. Why do we fall into cycles of sin? Have you ever felt like if I was a real Christian, I would conquer my sins and just keep finding new ones, right? Like, why not just come up with new sins? Why would you still struggle with the same sin? Shouldn't you have victory over the sin, right? Oh, well, the Bible says that Jesus set us free, so we should be able to handle all those. And so I guess, since we're not going to be sinless, we just have to keep finding new sins. That doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep struggling with the same sins in your life? Because your personality and your life situation are prone to certain sins and they just keep coming up. It doesn't mean that you're a failure, it means that you're human. It doesn't mean you did something wrong, it means it's how it has to be, right? You're still gonna have the same things. Why should suddenly your whole personality change and you struggle with something else? No, there's going to be patterns of this. There's going to be habits that you have to break. It is human nature to continue to battle the same sins over and over. That doesn't mean that you don't love God. It doesn't mean you don't want to do different. It's part of the process. But just because it's natural doesn't mean it's best. Christian process means that we allow the Holy Spirit to disrupt the patterns and set us free. Hmm. Let's pick up another place that it fell apart. Pick it up in verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, that's Philistines, Ammon, which are the Ammonites, and Moab, which are the Moabites. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they couldn't even speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Well, that elevated rather quickly, <laughs> right? You're like, wait, you did what? You beat them, you pulled out their <laughs> Man, that is such an extraordinarily... Over-the-top response, right? I mean, that's intense. But think about how he's actually behaved the entire time. What happened when he found out that the bad guy was in an apartment in the temple? What did he do? He picked up all his furniture and threw it in the street. That is so immature. 
<laughs> right? Like, why wouldn't, you, why wouldn't you just put like a, you know, you've been kicked out sign on his door and then had people move it or whatever? I mean, he was just like, get this out of here. And then he has them cleanse it. He's like, this is not a godly person. He is not a priest. He is not allowed to be here. I want you to fumigate everything, right? And they're just spraying everything down, right? And then when the leaders messed up on the whole tithing system, he rebukes them publicly, why is Nehemiah so intense and so extreme? Well, I got two options for you. Number one, Nehemiah is just a brutal and abusive leader out of control. Or number two, the stakes are too high to mess around and he's got to get something done. You know, Jesus got extreme as well, yeah? Anybody remember the story? Uh, hey, Jesus, we're going to temple. What are you doing? I'm making a whip. Well, Jesus, you didn't bring a whip last time we went to church. Why do you bring a whip? He comes into temple, throws over the money changer's table. He's whipping everything around, chasing out the animals, and wrecks the whole Gentile court in the temple. That was rather extreme, right? Oh, and do you remember the teaching that he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You know everyone sitting around was like, he's just exaggerating, right? <laughs> like, we're not all like poking our eyeballs out, right? Why so extreme? Are these leaders out of control and abusive? Well, I don't know. Look at the rest of their lifestyles. Are they bad guys? No. They're tremendous men of God, then what's the only other option? The stakes are way higher than you think they are, and they're the only ones that are tracking on it. Here's Nehemiah's perspective. Hey, Jerusalem, come here for a second. We have only been out of captivity for 93 years. Everything you're doing right here got us kicked out of our land. We are a laughing stock to the entire world. All the other nations know that God dropped us and kicked us out of our land. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people died, a bunch of them in the siege that took over where everything got so bad, people were in desperate, dire circumstances. And it happened because of the exact same stuff you're doing right now. We just got out of punishment. Why are we walking back into it? If I allow that pattern to establish again, God's just going to kick us out again. It is not about you. It's about something bigger. So if I need to bring the heat right now, I'm going to drop the hammer pretty heavy. If that was Nehemiah's perspective... What do you think Jesus' perspective was? What are you doing in my church? You're doing money changing. You're taking advantage. And where did you set up? In the Gentile area. Why? Because you don't care about Gentiles. Well, you know what? I'm about to die for Gentiles. So you get all up in yourself and think that nobody else matters and you can do whatever you want and ruin their entire church area. I'm not okay with that. Because I'm not just about saving one group of people, I'm about to die for the sins of the world. 
So you don't even realize what a big deal you're doing right here, but I'm not gonna put up with it. And he threw over all the tables. And then he said, you know what? I know what sin does. I've watched each and every one of my precious children I have formed by my own hands in their mother's womb. I've watched each and every one of them get wrecked by sin and die a death they never should have died. And you keep playing around with sin like it's no big deal. You keep saying, it's, oh, it's not going to be a problem for me. It's not going to be a problem for me. Oh, it's a problem for you. It's a problem for me. If you got it anywhere near you, like gangrene, cut it off before you go septic. Now, is that extreme or is that appropriate? Well, I don't know. Hacking someone's leg off is extreme unless they're about to go septic. Then it's appropriate. This intermarriage thing, right? Oh, you were marrying, you were into the Moabites and the Ammonites and your kids and you're mixing with them and everything. How dare you, right? What was that all about? I mean, they were told not to do it. So why are they doing it? Why? Is it really that big of a deal? Just, hey, let's not intermarry. Let's not hook up our children because a lot of it was arranged marriage, right? Don't connect with the foreign groups of these categories, why did they keep messing with it? Well, I don't know, but I'm going to give you three guesses. Number one, better options. I mean, this is a pretty small settlement, and it's like you're looking around on who your kids are going to marry, and you're like, eee. <laughs> like, I, I pretty well know everyone in the neighborhood, and uh, nope. <laughs> There's nobody there. But I'm, you know what? I might be able to find somebody else here. Right? Maybe that was it. Maybe it was just better options. Maybe it was possible advancement, because here's the thing. Most of the Jews that were in that area were super poor. But the nations around them were really wealthy. So what if you knew that really sweet boy over a street over that was a Moabite, and he's always been respectful, always been cool, always been nice to your family, and his dad's totally loaded, and your children will eat. What if you had a possibility of advancing your family? Or, I don't know, maybe that was the reason. What about the last one? Maybe they just didn't think it was that big of a deal. I mean, it's an ancient book. And it was telling them, you can't connect with these people because of something that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and you can't connect with the Ammonites for that reason. You can't connect with the Moabites. They ignored you when, they, when you needed them back in the day. None of that has to do with you. So you're going to change your entire world and choose who you're going to marry because of an ancient book? It's not that big of a deal. All right, you ready for me to make this personal? Why do you and I intermix with the world? The Bible told us not to. Be apart from them and be separate. Be different inside than they are. And yet today, it's super hard to find any difference between Christians and non-Christians. So why? What's the problem? It's pretty clearly spelled out, so why do we have such a hard time? Ironically, I think it's the same three reasons. Huh, better options. Well, I could do it the Christian way, or 
there's more interesting stuff out there. Possible advancement. You know, if I compromise, my life is going to go easier and I'm going to get more stuff. Huh. And what about it being a big deal? I'm really going to alter my life and be different from the rest of the world because of an ancient book? Is it even that big of a deal? Let's say I do it wrong. God will forgive me anyway. Huh. That's weird. It's almost like the story's about us. Hmm. Making difficult choices isn't only for a season. It's for a lifetime. I know you made that really tough call once. I just need you to make it again. And again. And again. Well, this is where we get into this discouragement place and we're like, I am done. I am burnt out and I am done. Are you? What's your other option? Because here's the reality. The Holy Spirit is managing our process and here's how he does it. You're wiped out and exhausted today, but he has extra energy for you tomorrow. You're out of your resources today, and he's going to give you more tomorrow. Because he operates off a manna principle. I don't give it all to you up front. I give it to you day by day. Because I'm not interested in giving you a big pile of stuff that you're going to blow through in about three weeks. I'm interested in being with you for a lifetime. So I'm going to give you a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. I got new treasures for you. I got new, what, adventures for you. I got new ideas for you. I got fresh energy for you. I have all of it waiting at all the right times. You keep telling me you're done. You mean you're done for today. I'll get you tomorrow, right? How do we move forward when we're taking so many steps back? I mean, you think that yet I gotta keep growing? You do. Just like you keep brushing your teeth, just like you keep taking out the trash, just like you keep putting gas in your car. It's just how it works. Life and Christian growth are not about arrival. It's not a hundred yard dash, it's a marathon. And God always has more. Let me close by saying this. God is not shocked by our unfaithfulness. Although he won't leave us there. God isn't horrified by our humanity. But he's given us his Holy Spirit so that we're more than that. God can handle failure and repeated sin. But Jesus died so we could be free if we want. The best kind of process and the only one we are interested in is one that propels us forward. And thank goodness the Holy Spirit does that. It might be slow. It might be confusing. But it works. God's really good at what he does. Rooting out sin isn't a one-time thing. But if we give up because we're disappointed in ourselves, we lose. God didn't give up on you. Don't give up on yourself. Let me close by, I want to pray for three groups of people. So whatever posture you feel most comfortable praying about, sometimes you just got to close your eyes to focus. You can just sit back and 
pray along with me, but I'm going to have three groups raise their hands as we're praying so I can know who I'm praying for. So let's begin to pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would allow your Holy Spirit to fill our environment. That when we come to you for need right here, right now, that you would meet us there. The first group I want to pray for are those of you that have been doing ministry in whatever capacity. You've served other people, served other people, served other people, but it doesn't feel like all your efforts have made any difference and you're burned out. Anybody feel like that? Raise your hand. You've been just serving other people and you're just tired. Anyone? Anyone? Yep. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we raised our hands because I guess we dreamed that if we tried hard enough, they would change fast enough. And all we feel like is that we're putting our efforts into a bottomless pit. Would you give us encouragement so we would not grow weary in doing good? That God, that you would boost up our spirit and our soul to be able to say, we serve today and we'll get fresh energy tomorrow. Encourage our hearts. Second group I want to pray for are those of us that are discouraged by not being further along in your Christian life. You've been in this for a little while and you should feel like you're further along than you are. Anybody feeling discouraged by not growing up in the Lord faster or more? Yep. Who else? Yep. 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 All right. I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, we feel like if we log this much time, we should be spiritual giants by now. And Lord, we're still dealing with fears and insecurities and, and identity problems. And, and, and it's so frustrating because we feel like, is it that we don't love you enough, that we don't hear you enough, that we're not following you enough? And yet, God, would you refresh us right now and let us know that if it wasn't for our connection with you, we wouldn't be anywhere near the health that we're at right now. God, would you remind us that every effort we have put in with you has had massive healthy return. That Lord, the things are going on in areas and at levels that we can't even imagine. We can only see what's going on right now, but Lord, you even see what would have happened if you were not present in our life. God, would you fill us full of that hope once again, that encouragement once again to say we are growing. We are vastly different than we began this journey with you, and we are transforming day after day after day, and we will not give up. Lord, would you encourage us? The last group I want to pray for are those of us who need the strength to cut off the sin that's killing us. We keep running into this problem with the same sin, and we want the strength to finally walk out, if that's even possible. Raise your hand if you want some freedom there. Yep, yep, a bunch of us. Yep, okay. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us, and your calling means that you enable us to get out. But Lord, each and every time we have this, we are the ones walking into it. It's not even like the enemy has to dangle it. It's like we go running for it. We've even put scheduled times to be back into our sin. We put in habit patterns to be able to run into what makes us feel better. God, I pray that you would give us the strength to make new habits right now. That, Lord, that you would remap our brains, that we are not always triggered in the same way. That we would make a difficult decision, but it would allow the next difficult decision to be easier. 
as we walk out of that pattern of living. Lord, when you, your word says that any time a temptation hits, you always provide a way out. Lord, I'm praying that we'll take it. God, we can imagine what it would mean to say no, but we don't feel like we have the ability to say no. God, would you remind us that in you, everything is possible. God, renew our hope and a vision of a life without that nagging sin, that we get so excited about the opportunity of being free that the temptation begins to pale. Lord, I ask for freedom for each and every friend that raised their hand today. And God, I pray that as our prayer team comes to this altar, Lord, that you would anoint this altar for victory and that heaven would respond to the prayers of the saints. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.